Good afternoon and welcome to Talking Events. Um, this afternoon being recorded from the offices of the event safety shop down in uh, in Bristol. I'm delighted to say that three of, uh, of the senior team at uh, the event safety shop are joining us uh, as today's panel for the podcast. Um, first of all, we welcome Mike Richmond. Mike, good afternoon. Good afternoon. Simon James, welcome to the podcast. Good afternoon. And Tim Roberts, uh, welcome to Talking Events. Hello all. All three of our guests were recently involved in the um, LAOG uh, training conference, the Local Authority Event Organisers Group, which um, which took place down uh, in Bristol, um, and presented various different sessions um, based on the experiences that they've got in the in the industry. So we're going to be picking their brains a little bit today, and um, and perhaps feeding from some of the information that was given to that to that small audience of, of delegates at that particular conference and, and opening up to our own uh, our own listeners. So a few questions to, to sort of kick things off and kick the discussion. Um, when we were down at the LAOG conference, uh, one of the things that cropped up was the difference between a contracted crowd and uh, a free event. Um, the local authority organisers there will have a lot of experience presumably of working with uh, free events, some experiences of ticketed events, those terms cropped up. Let's start by looking at the differences uh, between those two terms. Who wants to kick us off? I don't mind Tim. Um, <coughs> so w w the discussion was surrounding um, a contracted event is a term we kind of used for the ticketed event. You enter into a contract with a promoter, there's terms and conditions on the back of that ticket and you are aware of the conditions of entry if you've read them prior to um, prior to getting there. Um, and the free event, the free public event, of course, you haven't got a ticketed contract. Um, you're probably not paying anything because um, it's free and, uh, and therefore you're a little more um, Flexible when it, and uh, you probably don't get any conditions of entry either as you uh, as you as you uh, attend. So you end up with a completely different set of circumstances. It's uh, it, that was the initial conversation. And and how do those circumstances affect it? So from a safety point of view, what is the difference in dealing with a contracted audience and a and a free uh, a free event? To my mind, the the, the biggest single difference is uh, numbers attending, <clears throat> and with it with any kind of uh, advance situation whether it's a formal ticket purchase and enter of a contract or simply you know giving out freebies as it were you have an idea of who's coming whereas the one of the biggest risks arising from open access events is you don't know who's going to be there uh, you don't know what the arrival time is um, uh, you don't know what the profile is likely to be of those attending or it's more difficult to judge uh, so that brings with it a whole series of safety risks that the organiser needs to be very aware of and plan for in advance. Um, those same risks may arise with a ticketed audience, but at least the issue of, you know, if, if I've got room for 200 in my cinema and I sell 200 tickets, then the 201st person is told they can't come in. Uh, and the physical constraints of the building mean that you don't have to, you, you don't worry about the issues of overpopulation. Whereas with an open park event or an open access event where you don't have those controls, uh, the potential for overpopulation is always there, uh, and if the organisers done their job well and publicised the event well, and there is a public appetite, um, then you're balancing, uh, you know, the safety and the f safe capacity of your event, your access routes, your in, your out, uh, and so on. So it, it it's not so much the contract that makes the difference, I think, to public behaviour uh, as knowing about the numbers more accurately. How does it how does it alter your preparation? So Simon, you were going to add to that. Yeah, I mean, I I, I agree. It's you know that that huge 
unknown of how many people are actually going to turn up was certainly something that I talked with the LAOG uh, representatives about and it was uh, it's very difficult as an organiser to how do you plan for something that on a rainy day nobody may turn up on that sunny beautiful day you get hundreds of thousands of people turning up and knowing the difference and knowing what to plan for is a a difficult choice because if you're doing a free access event um, you know you've still got to prepare for the uh, the biggest crowd um, but that could be a disappointment if for instance you know the weather is a classic example of what changes people's minds of whether to come to something if they bought a ticket they will turn up because they pay for something and it has a value if it's a free event it doesn't have so much value in their their opinion so well it's raining I can't be bothered to go out today so I won't do and the organizers still standing there with uh, you know all those toilets ready and all those security guards ready does, does it affect your, um, the, the processes that you go through in order to prepare for an event? Is there a different set of processes and is one more difficult than the other depending on which one of these crowds we're, we're dealing with? I don't think it's different. No, I mean, it's, uh, it's far harder with an open access event just purely because of that numbers game. Um, but the, you know, overall the process is the same. You need to be prepared for, uh, you know, Make, making the site safe for whoever's turning up uh, and I say it, if you know those numbers you can guarantee what you need to do almost you can never guarantee anything in this game but um, I think with the, the open access it does make it harder and more testing and people you probably get asked more questions possibly by uh, authorities um, on because they want to know uh, they don't like the unknown uh, and certainly police forces around the country when you say it's open we don't know how many people are coming start getting a lot more nervous than if you say we've got 10,000 people that's what we've sold the, 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 you know there's ways of there's ways of judging it and ga- gauging or estimating that's not a finger in the air or oh, I reckon 2,000 coming will be fine um, you know an, an organizer it's it's incumbent on them to take you know, reasonable steps to try and establish what the risks are arising at their event. And if, a, if there is a risk from over-attendance, then okay, what other free events have happened in that space? What other organisers have been in there? What's the history in this particular locale or this particular town for people attending free events? And look widely. And, you know, you're, if, God forbid, you know, you're gripping the rail in the coroner's court and the coroner's saying to you, why didn't you take additional precautions you know, how did you decide that 600 were going to come and 8,000 turned up? You, you know, did you do a Google search for previous events, you know, in that mm. town? Did it, it's simple stuff and it's, it's, it's relatively cheap to get this kind of information so you can at least do something other than guess. And I think the other thing, just uh, on from what Simon says, it, it doesn't mean a massive investment in all those extra toilets or all those extra stuff just in case, oh blimey, yeah, I don't know, it could be 10,000, better get stewarding for 10,000, oh god, I've broken the budget. It doesn't need to work like that, you need to have a contingency plan that, you know, if the thing is becoming over full, then okay, where can I get and how can I get people to stop coming in or how can I choke the flow um, and rather than fighting your battle at the stage front, you know, think about you know, could it be that one guy with a loud hailer out in the high street saying, I'm sorry, it's really full, don't go to the park, could be better than 15 people having a desperate pitched battle, you know, at the entrance to the park. Um, so, you know, just being cute about how you deploy those resources and think in terms of shells of control away from the critical position where it could get overcrowded, that's what organisers need to do. And it, to be honest, you know, it's, 
I'm not saying it's a 10 minute thought about it, but it might be no more than a quick 10 minute thought and a chat with key stakeholders and people around. So well, what would we do if it was really busy? Well, I don't know. Um, blah. Okay, let's send Fred out with a loud hailer and stand at the entrance and say, I'm really sorry, can you come back tomorrow? That could solve it. The collective experience that the three of you have got is, is such that, have, have you had ex examples and scenarios that you've worked in before where really people haven't simplified it, that they've overcomplicated things and actually not just thought to stop and have that five minute conversation with people can it can it be as simple as that sometimes to, to, to rectify or to to have a good plan in place I think I think you would be it'd be too late I think you've got to have your good plan in place and um, smaller events obviously it may well be the 10 minute conversation or a small contingency plan but some of the bigger ones which are free that we've been involved in you know some of those take six to eight months out in just in operational and safety advice planning um, and you still don't know what's coming over the hill 100%. Um, uh, you know, and you, there's so many factors that can encourage that, that audience or that peak audience, you know, the, the most common being, if you've got a weekend free event and one day's good weather and one, the other day's uh, bad weather, then you, you, you bet your bottom dollar everybody's going everybody's to come on that first hot day. So you have to have contingency plan in for that. But you can continuously plan for how much occupancy you've got, but you don't know how many are coming. So, yeah, Tim's right. You, you push it out further. You, you look at how you stop the tap. Um, and on occasions in the past, we've stopped the tap. Yeah, yeah I think on occasions we, <laughs> you know, I've sat there in places where we haven't been able to stop the tap as well. You know, there is, there is places where, you know, in a city centre wide event, it's, it's very difficult. I mean, Tim's, Tim's right in the, you know, in the smaller scale, you've got entries in and you've got entries out. Um, but, uh, you know, doing some of the events we've done where we have a whole city centre, it's quite difficult to turn the tap off. Yeah. Well, well let's, let's move that on nicely then, uh, based on what you've just said, city centre events. Um, I, I think we're okay to, to mention the fact that you guys are heavily involved in, in both the Bristol Harbour Festival and also uh, Glastonbury. Two very, very different events, and, and they, they fall into perhaps the two categories that we've talked about at the, at the start of the podcast. Um, ingress and egress, um, looking at them in a, perhaps not minute detail, but let's have a quick overview, if we can, of, of the differences in dealing with ingress and egress. And we'll start with the city centre event that you mentioned, Simon. How, how do you deal with it in, uh, in Bristol for the Bristol Harbour? How do we deal with it? Well, we set a start time or the organiser sets a start time and um, people arrive uh, and they keep arriving and they keep arriving and they keep arriving and after a while you hope that some of them will go home because otherwise the ones that are still keep on arriving because it's a beautiful sunny day uh, there's not a lot of space left for them I mean it really is you know the history of the Harbour Festival which has been running a long time now and uh, you know I think we've all and certainly Mike's been involved in it in a very long time hopefully don't want yeah. to be saying that Mike um, <laughs> not all 44 think, yeah, years no. but it's you know we've built up a picture we know what people will do we know the peak times uh, that there will be people on site uh, and you know the morning's quite easy the early afternoon is is full and then the families go home in the evening, and the the evening economy comes. Uh, the evening economy comes out. So I think, from our perspective, the coming in and out of the city centre is is relatively. There's a certain easy. amount of predictability <coughs> after 44 yeah. years, unless you put some special feature on that people are waiting out before they come. Then, uh, as long as your programming is really level planed and patterned, then there's a certain amount of predictability with events that have been going for a number of years in city centres 
but it's when you do events and Simon's done some where it's a one-off it's happening it's a massive feature um, they're slightly more unnerving I think than uh, than ones that have got an element of predictability to them well, a certain experience in Brighton springs to mind <laughs> <laughs> are, you, are you able to integrate with um, with, with the infrastructure that's in here so it's the things like CCTV cameras um, you know anything that's sort of publicly owned or run or would usually be monitored by the police yeah I'm totally integrated this office the whole of this office is the event control for the Harbour Festival and we should point out to people that the office is plumb in the centre of Bristol we couldn't be more central yeah, really could we it's bang in the Harbour Festival site as well so uh, this room is our uh, emergency planning room a meeting room and then officers liaison officers emergency services use this as the base so we are totally integrated and we have outsourced the outsourced, but we can uh, speak to the CCT operators in the city, um, which is fairly common practice nowadays, wherever you're working. Um, so all the assets that you would expect to run a large crowd city centre event are available to us. There are peculiarities here in that we're in the middle of a harbour as well. So you end up with extended authorities, harbour authorities, coast guard and so on. Um, uh, in fact, many of the cities we work in, in fact, where we probably started really was on events that had water next to them. <laughs> um, how uh, different then, well, it's, it's obvious how different it is because it's a completely different site, but then when you're dealing with um, the ingress and egress of a, a ticketed crowd, so you've got people arriving with tickets at something like Glastonbury, Tim, um, how has it changed in the time that you've been involved from a safety point of view, the ingress and the egress? Well, I think the first thing to say is that the, the there are very broad similarities, <clears throat> regardless of the context or location or the content of the event. Um, you've got three key phases that the organiser needs to consider in terms of our interaction with the public. So there's the, uh, the ingress, the circulation, how they move around the event, and then their eventual departure from the event. At something like both Harbour Festival and at Glastonbury, because we're so extended in terms of size with multiple entertainment or attractions going on that the public might be ingressing circulating and egressing you know 20 or 30 times during their visit period into different subsections of the venue and I think if we zoomed out and said well all right how do people get to and get away from the Glastonbury Festival site as opposed to how do they go to venue A or B on the site um, we are fortunate I think as the Harbour Festival is to have the experience of decades of seeing what goes on and understanding the audience appetite and expectation. Uh, it used to be, uh, you know, maybe we went back 15 or 20 years at Glastonbury, um, that uh, Friday afternoon, Friday evening, you would await the waves of arrival um, pretty much timed as, uh, you know, the length of the car journey from Bristol, length of the car journey from London, you'd get waves of folks arriving once they kind of leave their early Friday, get away from work, you know, they'll stop at lunchtime and then drive down to the festival. In the intervening years, the festival has grown in stature and become established as one of those kind of iconic elements of the British summer. So, you know, British summer starts with the boat race. Um, and kind of ends up with us losing the rugby at some point. And, <laughs> and, and we're, we're kind of in the middle there with things like the Grand National, things like Wimbledon. It's become an established event. So radically different from sort of 25, 30 years ago or whatever, when the convoy were coming and it was kind of a big outlaw thing that, that almost lived and breathed outside of what you might call mainstream culture. It is now, like it or loathe it, part of mainstream culture. So people, they're, they're, the audience aspiration is a lot of them will take a week off work. 
Yeah, they will come as soon as they possibly can. So arriving late night on Tuesday into car parks that we open early so that we can get them off the highway and get them in. Um, and they will be in the festival waiting at the gates at sort of 0600. Uh, they're in on Wednesday and they leave on Monday. Uh, they set aside Tuesday for hangover and washing back to work on Wednesday. So they take a week of their holiday to come to do what they had previously done just over the weekend. So that's all great. It's good for us. It's very good for our traders. We get a much more, you know, we get more spend uh, on site. We're able to sell them more burgers, beer, and whatever it is they want. Um, but in terms of uh, the crowd arrival and the impact they have on the road transport network, on public transport and integrated ticket uh, and bus packages that we're seeking to promote, yes, is finely developed and finely tuned. Um, we know. Uh, you know how many folks to expect in which gate at what time the volumetrics are very you know well established because we've got a long mm. a long history of dealing with it um, as a bus just leaving for uh, absolutely early yes. ticket purchases now <laughs> uh, so I, I think we're lucky in that we can see uh, from history you know what happens and with the departure profile similarly we kind of know what's going to happen uh, if we take another event you know completely different thing Simon and I worked on shows in on the beach in downtown Abu Dhabi. Um, and looking at the arrival pro, what time do people turn up? What do they expect to do? You know, so you might have an experience Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday of what the arrival profile is going to be like to come and see stuff. Then Friday, which is their holiday, you know, it's effectively their Sunday. You know, Friday, lots of people will go home for Friday prayers and they, you get this massive influx of folks just for cultural and geographic and, you know, spatial reasons that they arrive in a certain way. And we found that when we started doing repeat gigs in the same place, you would have this very predictable arrival profile, regardless of the act, regardless of the entertainment. I mean, I think the, 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 one, the one difference, say, Tim, at Glastonbury, you have set gates and people are forced or you know, are, are channeled towards those gates, whether they come in the way. The, the open access events, the issue you've got is that you don't know where people, you know, are going to come from in the city centre? Are they mm -hmm. all going to come from the south of the river? Are they all going to come from the north of the river, the east or the west? Which direction they're going to come? Uh, and so being able to predict that they're all coming into one place, as they are at Glastonbury, and obviously in any, any ticketed event that you know they're coming to. But I think one of the challenges for the open access events is, you know, are we overloading one particular area? Um, or is it, you know, is it being managed equally around the whole site? Because you don't want to overload one area and make it too uh, overcrowded. Um, don't want to dwell on the, the next question too much, but I am curious to know um, about people being connected all the time. The fact that they've all got mobile phones in their pockets now and they're all on Facebook or Twitter or texting each other. How big of a, an impact that has on the movement of a crowd on a site um, so you get something that's unannounced, an unannounced performer somewhere, um, something that's taking place within any given site, and suddenly it goes wild on social media, a load of tweets about it, and you suddenly get crowd moving about. H has it had an impact on you? And have you seen that have a, a, an impact at any of the events you've been involved in? I, I think there's a potential impact, and it's something, again, I'm not here exclusively to talk about Glastonbury, but it's something Glastonbury is very much focused on, and uh, other big festival organisers that... Um, you know, we have the good fortune to work with. Uh, what technology has done, and you know, the mobiles that we're trying to get off the table to stop them <laughs> interfering with the microphones, is that it's almost free 
for anybody to talk to the entire world. Uh, and if I sent out a tweet now, not that I've ever sent a tweet in my entire life, but if I was able to work out how to do it and said, Bono's playing at Prince Street tomorrow morning, there would probably be a few folk sat outside overnight tonight. So there is that potential. However, the experience at Glastonbury, and I, I say this is the really big caveat of however, the experience at that particular event, I think, has indicated that the appetite for the public to live their lives through these plastic nuggets and to engage you know, extensively with the digital realm that sits above and around the live realm and the real realm is far less than we had thought. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, people at rock and roll concerts, oops, excuse me, uh, people at rock and roll concerts enjoy the corporate and collective experience of being there together. Having said that, if you stood on stage looking at it, all you can see is bloody screens of people filming what's going on. Yeah. But, uh, you know, there is the potential for flash mobs, there is a potential for um, unfounded rumours to circulate that could allow. Um, you know, uh, an, an assemblage of people for either good or erroneous rumours to be somewhere. Yes, it could happen, um, but yeah. uh, we haven't found that as being a problem oh, yet. Okay. But I think it is potentially. I, don't think I, I have either. I mean, it's been a you know the. the I tend to do much, much more as city centre events. And sure. Again, it, there isn't anything that I've seen in my experience so far that's made us believe that it's, you know, that it's been driven by social media in any particular thing, um, you know, any particular sure. way. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I, I, the only possible exception is when you've only got one element of entertainment offer, mm -hmm. and social media then takes a life of its own. It's not about whether there is a band playing somewhere or not. Well, it's about, well, the classic example is the Bristol International Balloon Fiesta. Are the balloons flying? The power is back with us, the organiser, in that respect, because if the balloons, if we don't know the balloons are flying, because the weather's, you know, do, let's, let's call it, the, the weather could allow it or not allow it, depending on how, it, how the weather goes in the next hour, we use it as a massive tool to inform incoming audience. Yeah. Right. So you reverse it. It actually works in your favour in that respect, because if you've got... A traffic system that's got perhaps nine to ten thousand cars in it, and you can let them know that we're not flying. I think I think Mike's point is absolutely crucial. That that what social media does enable is the well-planned uh, organisation to be able to to make very quick mass communications with people in a way that would be unavailable, un, uh, you know, under circumstances maybe ten years ago. Unless sure. of course everyone's yeah. walking around with a FM radio that they had tuned into you. <laughs> yeah. um, but the other thing that we find is that um, not so much that the rumour that Daft Punk are going to play, which is a perpetual rumour at Glastonbury, <laughs> you know, that Daft Punk are going to be on such and such a stage and there's 200 people there and even as the lampies are bringing the last bit of truss out the roof, you know, they're all stood there still waiting for the band to come <laughs> on. Um, what we found is that it's a useful way to find out what people are talking about. So if you see complaints about a toilet or if you see, you know, you know, you can glean good customer information. As Mike says, it's a brilliant tool for the organiser to speak back to folks. Mm -hmm. But certainly at Glastonbury and, um, you know, at Reading and Latitude, it's something that is really carefully thought of. Yeah. If the organiser does a lot of blah, 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 forget it. Yeah, you know, look people at people lose interest, don't they? Exactly. Yeah. Look at the number of tweets that um, you know the Glastonbury Festivals Limited or Glastonbury Twenty Fifteen, whatever it was, or Emily Evis will actually make microscopic in number, but really carefully targeted in terms of content. As Mike says, it can be the, not a golden bullet, but it can be a really strong. 
uh, element. So perhaps a bit of advice there for, for organisers who are listening to this, this episode, because there are um, some events out there that will saturate their Twitter feed or their Facebook feed with loads and loads of information. And if you do that and people do switch off, it then becomes a less powerful tool to communicate when you really, really need to. Um, and, and, and it could be um, a key element. I think people need to be careful not to get involved in online spats as well during their event. You know, get that, those those people who've come up with things. You know, oh, your event's terrible. It's the worst. It's you know, all this is going wrong, and then and then the, the organizer starts to go back to them on live is probably another lesson to be yeah, lesson yeah, not yeah. to get involved in because I've seen that happen and it's like well step back let them let yeah. them have their rant because everybody's allowed their rant on the uh, yeah. social media but if you get involved you're pulling yourself and that's not just about the way it looks you're using the resources up of somebody who should be thinking about a bigger picture rather than just one specific uh, item that's happening at that well, moment you just do the sums don't you if you've got 100,000 people at your free event and you've got uh, 20 to 30 tweets about a toilet yeah. then why would you respond you just go around and fix the toilet without responding uh, you know, <laughs> you've just got to stop your PR companies from doing it and and, uh, and just sit back and think actually there's another 98,990 people who haven't complained about that <laughs> toilet and I, I think the the mechanism of how tweets are communicated maybe gives a false impression of value to the content. Mm. So if I overheard someone in the bar saying, Bono's playing tomorrow morning, I'd treat that as a rumour that I overheard in the bar. If you see a tweet that says Bono's playing tomorrow morning, it has a degree of gravitas because yes. it's it's there and in a medium, so it's come through the air, it must be true. Yeah. You know, that actually this is just that people are repeating. <laughs> you know, so one might find that the organizer exactly you know exactly as these other guys are saying are responding to individuals yeah. who are tweeting some gratuitous or irksome nonsense that is best ignored so keeping you know keeping the communications from the organizer back to the public very very sparse and very well targeted is mission critical i think you can it's analogous to the fact that you know in the in the old days if you got your know, first aid figures reported to you every hour you were looking for patterns and you're looking for patterns as somebody tripped over at the same place 10 times. Social media, you're looking for patterns. Uh, and if it ain't a pattern, don't respond. Absolutely. Yeah. Let's, um, let's, let's move things on. I think, I think we've covered that nicely. Um, and I'm going to move on to a, a bit more of an international scene because you do work internationally um, around the world with, with touring productions on events um, on a global level. Yesterday, there was a news story that came out following the, um, the, the crash in Malta, the car crash, at the, 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 the Porsche car that crashed through some crowd barriers. 26 people injured, as we understand it at the moment. Um, yesterday, the Maltese Prime Minister requested a review of legislation governing safety at public events and a report to be drawn up. Curious to know, we've got, I think everyone would agree, we've got very, very high standards and a very, very good level of safety standard within our events in the UK now. What's it like when you take the standards that you create and operate within here and take them overseas? Um, uh, Is this a can of worms, potentially? where we speak now. Uh, Yeah, I mean, it it is very different in different parts of the world, uh, and I think... Uh, going abroad and using um, specifically English production houses, uh, you know, organisers, 
they are very aware and they will always keep to those uh, you know they tend to try and take best practice from the UK and use that abroad there are places which there are countries in this world that we are slightly amazed at sometimes that we can't quite believe that they operate in the manner that they do from a safety perspective um, and other places you would probably you would perceive that would be how they would deal with it but certainly um, I think you know without naming countries because I don't really want to because we have clients in various countries that I'd rather not pick up on but it, there are some surprising missing bits from a safety perspective in how people manage, look after public safety uh, for countries that you would be amazed at. Um, I think you could, you could say that there's some that, uh, every year we mitigate the risk and there are some that ensure the risk. Um, right. There's a big difference in, in those. Are you proud of scenarios where you've actually been able to implement and see positive changes overseas as a result of the work that you've done with events that you've been involved in? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I, I, I don't think we, any of us would wish to take credit personally for that, but the activity of the event in the country, the cultural impact is demonstrable in a number of places. Mm -hmm. I'm going back to the previous question about uh, you know, the, difference, the difference and the difficulties of living or, or working in places where there are uh, very variable approaches both to legislation and the enforcement of good practice. Uh, kind of exemplified by, by one particular client we have, which is the British Council. Uh, and the British Council operates in 115 countries around the world, um, and they are required, as part of their general charter, you know, to put on events and cultural activities in those locations where there may be an absolute absence of legislative enforcement to do the right thing. But the British Council take a, an, an excellent model, which is we would aspire to do and offer the same degree of protection as we can in the UK. We would seek to, you know, as part of our sort of ambassadorial role to go out to the world and say, this is what the Brits do, to set good practice and demonstrate that it's not a stranglehold in events to do them safely. Uh, and to be, you know, culturally cute, to not kind of point the finger and snigger mm. up your sleeve and go, oh, look, they've all turned up in flip-flops. <laughs> Wouldn't get that in Britain. But to work with those guys who are turning up in flip-flops and try and sort out the reasons behind it, try and, you know, empower and enable the people in those countries to, you know, work to a higher standard. Um, I, I think looking at the other end of the scale of things, we're very lucky to work with clients who, you know, uh, in some instances are very well capitalised, taking big projects around the world and who are able to take a high level of safety with them and not enforce that locally but you know require it locally as they go around and if you look at an organization like for example the event safety alliance um, out of the usa who you know a very recently you know emerging organization that we've had a lot of dealings with um, you know they are looking for a genuinely global standard we are never going to get the government of vietnam to pass the same legislation as the government of Angola. You know, it's just never going to happen. It's, it's pointless. But a tour or an entity or a group of production technicians or folk, you know, us who are working internationally, we may go to Vietnam, we may go to Angola or Amsterdam or wherever it is, and we should take with us that set of kind of moral, cultural, economic and technical values that means we do the right thing regardless of where we are. It's genuinely an international business, the events business. And we're perfectly positioned, better than the politicians, to start setting global standards. And that's the, you know, the sort of the torch that the ESA and 
you know, in the UK, the PSA um, are, are torchbearers for both those things. I, I might be just far too assumptive here, but when you are specifying your levels and your standards that, that, that you wish to work to with events, do, does their budget or lack of play a part in being able to meet the standards that you wish to set? We, to don't, we don't set any standards at all. Okay. You know, the standards are set by you know the standards are set either by the, the law of the land or you know what what our client wishes to do we advise our clients on uh, what we believe to be appropriate systematic economically viable ways of doing it safely so we don't come in with a stand so you do it the test way you know you, you, <laughs> yeah. you, you need to yeah. add a zero to that budget mate otherwise we're out the door um, you know to be honest the worst thing we could possibly do to a client is just to walk away and say sorry that's you know you're not listening to our advice we're going and I think in the history of the company that may have happened once or possibly twice uh, so we, we don't set a standard the standard should be and is set by cultural norms and you know legislative process we seek to you know help people comply with that guys um, we're gonna wrap up this episode um, thanks for being on the show today um, we, we appreciate your input anybody who's listened to uh, today's episode of the podcast um, if you've got any follow-up questions, any thoughts, um, tweet us at Talking Events. Um, you'll be able to listen to the podcast via iTunes, uh, via the Event Industry News website, and you will be able to watch a video recording of this podcast via the Event Industry News YouTube channel. For now, it leaves me to thank Mike Richmond. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Simon James. Thank you. Uh, Tim Roberts. And you've been listening to Talking Events. Mm -hmm.